Hello and welcome to episode 15 of our Staff Room Rambles podcast. My name is Chris Mayo and with me as always is Tom Rogers. Tom, how's it going? Hi everybody, I'm very well Chris. Thank you very much. Good. It's um, been, uh, once again, it's been a while since we, uh, we managed to find time to sit down and record. So it's, uh, it's it, has, it has been a while, hasn't it? <laughs> we, we're both, both in Spain, sunning it up. Well, actually, it has, we haven't been sunning it up. Cause it's, it's been, been miserable. It's been really horrible. It's been non-stop raining in, in Vigo for about three weeks now, I think. What about you? Where yeah, are you? Remind I'm, everybody. I'm just outside Almeria on the south coast. Uh, you know, the idea of moving to the south coast of Spain sounds very glamorous. And, and often it is, I have to say. But... Yeah, the last couple of weeks, it's been really windy, really rainy and quite cold. And it's difficult because you look at the temperatures on like on a weather app or something like that on your phone and it looks, oh, it's, it's 15 degrees. That's quite nice. It's absolutely freezing. Absolutely freezing. Uh, but it's a little bit brighter today. So uh, fingers crossed that we might be turning a corner soon. It feels a bit difficult to moan about it when I know that the UK and a lot of Europe is under an awful lot of... Uh, no, no, no. Let's just <laughs> moan about our relative poverty over here, mate. <laughs> Let's do that, all right? Exactly. I don't think we'll have many sympathisers, I have to say. <laughs> right, fire away. What are we talking about today? Well, we've got, uh, we've got quite a lot of uh, things that we would like to discuss, I think. Um, we'd like to have a, a brief conversation about uh, teacher workload, which is something that we talk about quite frequently on this podcast. But uh, uh, Damien Hines has been uh, wading in. Uh, with some views of his own uh, in uh, the last 24 hours or so. So that'll be interesting to talk about. Um, we're also going to have some conversations about performance-related pay uh, and issues uh, around that. Um, the CBI have said some interesting things recently about rote learning in schools and whether or not that has a place. So that will be something else we just discuss. Um, US President Donald, Donald Trump gets a mention in our, in our podcast. Um, so our overseas listeners may be interested in that, as well as our UK-based fans. Um, People Premium is also on the agenda for us today. And then we have a couple of recommendations for uh, conferences and a couple of uh, fun chats towards the end, we hope. So it should be quite packed. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll uh, get going as soon as we can. Uh, Tom, what do you want to start with? Um, let's start with, because it's the most re recent, is what Damien Hines said yesterday. I believe it was at the CBI conference. Is that, or ASCL conference, sorry. Yeah. Is, that, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Do you want to do you want to summarise basically what he what he said? Because because I've read it, but you, know, you you tell everybody what it is. Yeah. So Damien Hines is, um, uh, I assume, trying to curry favour with teachers in the UK by suggesting that he wants to be the person responsible for uh, reducing teachers' workload. Now, there's not a teacher in the world who wouldn't. Uh, initially, I'm sure, think that that was a good idea. You know, obviously, we talk about teacher workload an awful lot and the, the issues around that. Um, I think one of the, the, the biggest problems, uh, and if I, if I quote from uh, Mr. Hines, he says that too many of our teachers and our school leaders are working too long hours and on non-teaching tasks that are not helping children to learn. Now, I think a lot of teachers would agree with what he's saying. Um, however, I think uh, my position on that would be that a lot of those uh, perhaps more bureaucratic tasks and things that are not directly helping children to learn don't come from schools themselves. They do sometimes, for sure. But a lot of it is government legislation that makes that happen, or at least perceived um, uh, inspection targets from Ofsted and that kind of thing. People you know, often generate this unnecessary workload, um, I think because of issues around um, fearing unsatisfactory gradings from Ofsted and issues of government funding and those kinds of things. So I think it's really difficult to, to make such a bold claim as we want you know, to, to reduce this. He doesn't provide any practical ways uh, of of fixing the problem, it, it's just it just seems a really sort of piecemeal, um, a bit of a sort of soundbite kind of um, speech that he's done, which I, I really can't see personally any any major value in. Yeah, and I mean that was echoed in in what Spielman said in the same um, in the same conference. I think she said um, that if the people who make them run so well, as in good leaders, are burning out and leaving the profession, so again she's she's making clear this argument that the workload issue is about leadership. The workload issue is about good leaders in schools. That's what it is. It's not about much else. It's she, her, her view, and I don't know if it's her genuine personal view, but it's certainly her organization's view, is that if we had excellent leaders across the country, the workload issue would be dealt with. 
It's my view that that is complete rubbish, basically. Um, it would not be dealt with. I, I, would, I would argue that 20% of the workload issue comes from poor governance of schools, poor running of schools. 80% comes from other things. And there are a number of, there are a number of other things, um, which I can run through it, you know, shortly if you want. Um, but there are a number of other things. What, one, of them, one of the key issues, which you've already mentioned, is the gradings that Ofsted have in place on schools. So you've got your requires, you've got your inadequate requires improvement, good, outstanding. And even, even so-called, in inverted commas, good schools um, are under pressure to stay good and they're under pressure to, to be outstanding. But the particular pressure obviously falls on those people who are graded inadequate or requires improvement. Now, it's my central argument that basically those schools are being judged on, on the attainment of their students. And I've carried out a lot of research over the last couple of months. That I say I've carried out the research. I haven't. I've found a lot of research. I've researched the research um, that has confirmed to me what I already thought, which is that about 80% um, of student outcomes can be attributed to outside factors. Nothing to do with what the teacher does in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Now that, now somebody turned around to me and said, well, what's the point in getting up in the morning and going to the school then in that case? My response to that is, well, that 20% is still worth fighting for. Yeah, yeah. This is not at all saying that teachers have no impact. And also, this is only linking it to the attainment of students. It's not linking it to all the other impacts teachers can have. They can have big emotional impacts and so on. This is about purely results. And and the the research tells us that more than 55% of, of student attainment in exams comes down to hereditary factors. In, in, in other words, genetics, unfortunately. That's, that's, that's what the research tells us, whether we like it or not. And I'm only quoting one of the reports. Um, between that 55% and 80% is other things like neighborhood, home environment, involvement of parents, and so on. That's the, and personality comes into it as well. So I think we need to get away from this fallacy that schools are in full control of what their students achieve. That is the fallacy that Amanda Spielman is pushing and it seems to be that Damien Hines is buying into, is, is, is rolling along the same way that all the other education sectors over the last 10 years have done. Yeah, and I think, I think you're completely right, uh, Tom, that, that too much uh, pressure is put on schools to achieve uh, gradings that are, I think, largely unhelpful and largely quite problematic. Uh, one of the things she, that, that she says, which I, I, I do absolutely completely disagree with, um, that she calls certain bits of, un, uh, of extra work entirely unnecessary, uh, such as rehearsals for mock inspections. Well, the reason that head teachers and governing bodies and senior leadership teams feel that there is a need for mock inspections is because they know how incredibly damaging to their schools, to their students, and to their careers it would be if uh, they were to receive a really negative um, you know, inspection result uh, in the real thing. So they, they, this is why they get external consultants in local authority consultants, people who have entire jobs to carry out mock offset inspections in schools. They do that not because they want to increase the workload on teachers or themselves. They do it to avoid being roundly shafted by the inspectorate. And I completely understand and sympathize with head teachers who feel that that is necessary. I, I, do, I do, but I think actually those head teachers, even though they're, they're probably doing it for completely the right reasons, actually, based on what I've just said, they don't need to. Because no, Ofsted, Ofsted have already made those decisions. A lot of the decisions they've made will have been made before they even get to the school gates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we need to, I, I think there is still a small number of of. Uh, there, there is still a percentage that believe that what happens in the two days, because remember, there are only two-day inspections now, what happens in those two days decides the outcome. There is still quite a chunk, I would say, of individuals who, who believe that's the case. Now, I can understand why, because only five, six years ago, that was the case. But things have changed. Things have shifted dramatically. It's now about progress eight. It's now about attainment. That's what it's about. And they can look at that on Raise Online, they can look at that on any data system they want and they can see exactly what's happening in that school. Judgments will be made. Now, obviously, when they get into the school, they, they might fix onto a line of inquiry, mm. you know, to, to kind of prove the school is requires improvement 
or inadequate or whatever grade they're going for, in inverted commas, because I do think there's an agenda in a lot of cases. Um, so, yeah, so I sympathize with, with all leadership teams and head teachers, but, you know, but at the end of the day, it, it, there's no point in doing a mock Ofsted. No, I think I think in a lot of cases you're you're absolutely right. But I do I do you know as you as you say sympathise with why people feel that that might be necessary because yes. ultimately oh, yeah. the, the stakes are just so high. And we know we can all I'm sure if we thought about it hard enough think of people who've been in leadership positions and lost those positions because of the result of an Ofsted, uh, whether or not they've chosen to resign, whether or not they've been forced out by an academy trust, a local authority, a governing body, whatever. Um, but there are an awful lot of cases of people having to leave their jobs or feeling they have to leave their jobs after uh, an inspection result hasn't gone the way that they'd have liked. And, and so the stakes are so high that I, I completely, completely understand it. Yeah, I agree. And, I, you know, I just want to see something different. I want to see Damien Hines or somebody say something different. I want to move the debate on from the usual stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's always been when we've had these conversations, particularly at government level, I think that the, it's always been so lightweight. Damien Hines is not yes. actually saying anything here at all. He might as well say, you know, I, I want all teachers to be paid £100,000 a year starting effective tomorrow immediately. But it's pointless. It doesn't mean anything. It's not going to happen. Yeah. He's, not, he's not suggested a single uh, practical measure of how they can do that. There hasn't been any, there has not been any policy change on workload that I can remember. No. Can you remember one? No, I can't. I can't. There have been, been lots of suggestions. A significant, a significant policy change. I can't remember one on workload. No, not at all. I mean, and, and this, the, the main thing that he said here is that after the current round of changes to GCSE and A-level um, uh, curriculums and exams, uh, that that will be it for the for, you know for the rest of this parliament. Well, this parliament isn't going to go on for the next twenty years, is it? We, we only have a couple yeah. of years left, and that's that's not a very big commitment. I suppose the the, the only wider political, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but at, at the moment, the the conservative majority is obviously very slim, um, and you know is basically built on a, a small coalition, isn't it, with the DUP? Yeah. So I just wonder how tied their hands are on major reform. H however. I still don't think that's an excuse for not saying it. I mean, no. if you're going to say we're going to deal with the workload issue, and they have brought it up, it has been brought up in Parliament a number of times in the last you know, few months, mm. but, but by, by various people, both within the ruling party and, and the opposition, that you know, the key reason is recruitment and retention. So he's got this speech together. He thought, right, the key issue is recruitment and retention, so I'll talk all about that. But he has said nothing. No, absolutely, absolutely. That have, that nothing. It's just a nothing speech, and, and I expect more nothing speeches. Yeah, the, the I, there have been many in the past, and there'll be many in the future. I mean, to begin with, the headline looks great. You know, Damien yeah. Hines wants to reduce teacher workload, but there is nothing in what he said that convinces me that anything significant will change anytime soon. For sure. For sure. I mean, I mean, an interesting one is what the, uh, the, the, the Liberal Democrats, I don't know if you saw that last week, um, I think it's the education uh, person for the Liberal Democrats came out and said um, that basically they, they were going to ban off, they were going to scrap Ofsted mm. um, and basically get rid of um, the, the uh, accountability systems. They, they were going to take it, you know, they were going to take it much further. Yeah. Um, uh, here it is. They want to abolish Ofsted, SATs and league tables. Well, what Damien Hines should be doing is, yes, th this is probably, let's be honest, the Liberal Democrats probably know they're not going to be in power anytime soon. So you could say this is grandstanding. You could say this is grandstanding. It's populist. It's just populism. But what, what Damien Hines should be doing is, is saying, right, well, if the Liberal Democrats are proposing that, why can't we? You know, why can't we do something more radical here? Yeah, I think, there's, I think there's probably a need to, to find some sort of middle ground between the two of those things, because there's absolutely no way if the Liberal Democrats were to get in power anytime soon, and, and I don't expect that they will, um, no. th there's no way that they would scrap Ofsted, lead tables, and any level of accountability. Yeah. It's just not practical. And I don't think that would be particularly popular with the general public either, who want to be able to have some kind of way uh, of having faith in, uh, in individual schools and you know, being able to compare schools, I'm not suggesting that any of the, 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 those things are necessarily bad ideas, but I just don't think it's, you know, again, it's, it's just as a way- Well, of, well you, um, say, you say that, but, but for example, um, Catherine Burbel Singh, the head teacher of Michaela and, and, and a very kind of influential person in education has, has said several times that she feels the right way forward is to ask parents to what they want in the locality. 
how do they want their schools to be judged? Do they want them to be judged on high stakes testing? Do they want them to be judged on something else? But I think I, don't know, that's, I know that's a controversial one, but I do honestly believe that that offers a different way of looking at things. But different, different isn't always better, and I think that that is just it, it's it's putting too much power in the hands of people who don't necessarily, um, yeah, you know, no, not necessarily the most informed. You know, and lots of our, lots of our children's parents are, you know, in, in, incredibly. Uh, well positioned to be able to make such calls, but so many of them also aren't, and that's that's not in any way a slight against any individual. It's just yeah. you wouldn't put the, the put me in charge of running uh, some kind of national economy because. Uh, do you want to bet? I do you want to bet? <laughs> I, mean, I I honestly feel that with Chris Mayo's direction, that, that you know the crisis in Venezuela would just never have happened. Well, honestly. If I appreciate your vote of confidence, but I don't feel quite as confident in myself. Um, so I just, I just, I'm the wrong person to do that job, and I think parents are the wrong person to to do, you know, the job of determining. I agree. I agree with everything you've just said of not having more confidence in yourself, Chris. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Shall we? Uh, shall we move on? Yeah, let's go. Go on. What would we like to talk about next, Tom? Um, Okay, let's get it out of the way. Trump and his policy of arming teachers, Chris. I know you've got some uh, strong views on this one. Yeah, I th- well, I, I think it's hard not to have strong views about something that's such an emotive uh, topic. You know, we have to, in, in, in some senses, it, it's almost hilarious. It's almost laughable, some of the things that the president has said. But at the center of it, it, it is this enormous epidemic in the US of school shootings, which is just not common. Yeah anywhere else in the world it's neighboring country oh well actually actually i'll throw in a fact for you there's been zero in the united kingdom i believe since well since the dawn of i was oh was that one in ireland i can't remember but i was looking at a statistic and i think it was something like since 2012 or something there's been zero in the uk yeah and exactly. it tells you what everything you need to i think there's been 96 in the united states something along those lines and i think but i think that, that comparing the us and canada is is in some ways um in some ways even more yeah, helpful because, yeah. because one thing that we often forget about uh, our Canadian cousins is that they there is an awful uh, high percentage of gun ownership in Canada, um, very similar percentages to, to yeah. that of the US. And school shootings is just not an issue that they suffer from. Um, now, far be it from me to try and get to, to the bottom of, of why those, those uh, issues may take place. One thing that I know for sure uh, and maybe this sounds incredibly uh, self-confident and arrogant. Maybe I've taken your advice uh, too uh, too far, Tom. Um, but there is absolutely no chance in the world that arming teachers will reduce gun violence in schools in the US. It absolutely won't. And I don't have evidence to back that up. I don't have any statistics that are useful. I have not read any research that will back up my point of view. But I know it very, very surely. That is the wrong way to go about tackling an incredibly dangerous issue. I completely agree with you. The only thing I I would throw in, and I'm, by the way, just to be clear, I'm I'm anti-guns in general. You know, I I believe that, you know, banning guns across an entire country is the logical thing to do. And I think it works perfectly well in the UK and other countries that I've lived in. So I'm anti-guns. However, um, I think from a historical perspective, we we do need to understand that in the United States, the, the ownership of guns is tied around individual rights. Now, it shouldn't be. But it is. That's where, and, and you know, um, it's it's almost part of their. It's part of their psyche. It's part of their constitution. It's now why it has to be guns. Why it can't be something else? I've no idea. But I, but I, but I'm just trying to put a bit of context around why guns are so, you know, have this weight, this gravity. I mean, to me and you, being British, I think it's just it's just balmy, isn't it? Really, we yeah. don't. I don't. Any, I don't see why a, how, how owning a gun can carry the kind of weight it does. I mean, for me, if you said, in it, right, we're, we're banning guns, people say, okay, then. But having a gun is almost part of, it's almost part of American identity for some, it seems. But I could be wrong on that. Yeah, I think, I think that is uh, quite possibly true. I think we, we often in the UK um, oversimplify how uh, similar are the, you know, ourselves are as Brits uh, are to a lot of American people. I actually think we have so many more cultural differences than we often, um, you know, that we often think about. Um, and and that, that idea of gun ownership is something that is not remotely entrenched into, into UK culture, but probably partly because it's entrenched in the constitution of the US. Uh, it, it, 
it is seen as a right that in the same way that it wouldn't be to me. I would never want to possess a gun. I would never have yeah. a need to, to have or use a gun. And I don't believe that it would protect me in any way. Um, now, if we start to you know, introduce this idea into a school environment, and of course there are already in, in, in the US many schools that have uh, police officers on site. There are you know, armed security personnel in lots of schools, not all schools of course, but in a significantly um, you know, interesting percentage. Um, and, and some of those schools, you know, are, are they honestly safer? I don't, I don't know, just because... Well, they're not. I mean, we, I, think we can, I think we can categorically say with 96 school shootings since it was either 2012 or 2010, um, that, 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 that there is no... Uh, arming teachers, it, uh, you know, is not the answer. I mean, there were people armed at, in Florida. Yeah. There were, there, were, there were at least five people. I think there was three people outside the building who were on. Now, I know Trump's come out and said those people should have gone into the building. And, and you know, I don't know the ins and outs of that. Well, I don't even, know. Even more, hilarious, jobs he, even more hilariously, he said that uh, had he been there, he'd have gone in, armed or unarmed. <laughs> I mean, it's just. I mean, we shouldn't laugh. We shouldn't laugh at that. In no, the, in because, the because in the end, I mean, this is this is what I said. But this is why I said at the start of this conversation. You know, in a way, it's almost hilarious, ex except for yeah. that it's one of the most tragic things you can imagine. Yeah, it, exactly. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be absolutely hilarious. You couldn't. Yes. You couldn't. You couldn't. You know, what I've, one of the things I've been watching an awful lot of recently is uh, the US, U.S. political drama Veep, which is I think is absolutely hilarious. Really, really funny show. Great show. They couldn't possibly do a story about this because it's too ridiculous. It would never happen that the president would outright say something that ridiculous. So it's the ramblings of a five-year-old child. And yet- Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, if you put it into a different context, it's, it's like saying, you know, in, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like England 1990, you know, when, um, when, when Stuart Pearce missed the penalty, or I can't even remember who it was now. I wasn't, I was five years old at the time, but somebody missed a penalty. It's like the prime minister turning around and saying, I would have scored that. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It is. Yeah, it's, that, it's that kind of attitude, and it's just I don't know. But I also think that one one thing that we haven't, and may, I'm sure it has been talked about, but I haven't really uh, read or seen much of this is is the is the angle of you know of teachers and teachers' mental health um, positions themselves. What, I mean, what happens on the inevitable, in my view, occasion? When a teacher with a precarious state of mental health, who is one of the many people who is now armed in US schools, what mm. happens when they just have one of those days where life is too much and they have in their pockets a lethal weapon? Are we honestly going to suggest that there will never, ever, ever be a time when that teacher mm. uses that weapon against themselves to end their own lives or against somebody else if they have you know, some sort of blazing row with somebody? I don't believe that that will never, ever be used but, not but also, to protect people, but also but to cause people harm. It, I mean, it just seems obvious that that will happen. You're absolutely right. But also, um, using the, the situation we have now is because we've got all these gun shootings going on in schools and, and elsewhere in the United States, that mental health is almost being used as a, as a weapon to say, well, these are just people with mental health issues yeah, yeah. who are doing this. And it's weaponizing mental health. It's making people question whether people with mental health conditions are more likely to be violent, yeah. which, which, which in itself is pretty preposterous. I mean, um, you know, obviously it would depend on the condition they had, etc. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I, I do believe that there is, you know, the, the other issue that sprung up is this issue of weaponizing mental health in, in, in politics, you know, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's, it is potentially quite dangerous to, to talk about in those terms. But um, yeah, I just, I mean, the whole, the whole issue is just, it's so ludicrous. And I, I would, I would, you know, hazard a guess that the majority of the people who, who will listen to this podcast, uh, I don't imagine many of their views will be massively different. But no. I, I certainly have read in, you know, uh, in social media, particularly on certain Facebook groups and posts that I've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, that there are a, a surprising, perhaps, and worrying, perhaps, number of people that I have seen write things like, well, yeah, good idea, give teachers guns, that'll shut them up, kind of thing. But I suppose it's like it's like anything, though, Chris. If you if you put yourself in the context of the United States and the way it's been over the last I don't know hundred years, saying something like some, saying something like that in the United States in that context would seem a lot more reasonable. Yeah, yeah, completely. Because Absolutely. you know, I mean, to us, it's like, oh, that's completely bonkers. But you have to remember that they they are so 
they are very much, it's part of their constitution to have a gun. So there's no question people are going to have guns. Yeah. So, so to us, there is. Because I think in Britain, I think everyone would want to change the constitution if that was the case. And I, I absolutely think, you know, as much as I, you know, can criticise our politicians and whatever, I honestly think they would act on it. I honestly think they would change the constitution. So I, think, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that that's probably would be the case if the constitution had been in place for the extent of time that the one in the US has. I know it's a much it's younger awesome. country, but I think the fact, yes, that, I think the fact that it, it, people have, I think the issue in, in America is that people have grown up for, for forever with this being, you know, being part of their, their set of human rights that they are, you know, that they're afforded. And I think if that had ever been the case in the UK, I think we'd find similar levels of resistance to change. Yeah, but you have to remember, I mean, you think about the Magna Carta, you know, um, I mean, that's 1215, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, 800, 900, whatever years of history that the, the constitution has been building and being added to in the United Kingdom. Yeah. It's evolved over a much longer time period. Sure, my, sure. my prediction would be in the United States, at some point, the politicians will change that part of the constitution because they will have to. Yes, I, th I think it'll be it right. will just It will just get to the extent, I mean, by the way, we're only talking about school shootings. We're not talking about cities like Chicago that mm -hmm. are literally like war zones for, for, and have been like war zones. You know, more, more people dying there than there were in, in Iraq, Afghanistan and so on. Yeah. You know, when those conflicts were going on. Um, so at some point, I think there will be not only a political need, I think there already is a political need. But actually, I think that that, that will be joined by literally it will push it to the point morally and ethically where that, those decisions have to be made. Or will be made by by people in the positions who th who have a good look at it and say, "Hang on, we've got to do this." And I my prediction would be it may be in a long, long time down the road. We may be talking a hundred years down the line. Yeah, I think I think that is the issue. I think I, I do agree with you, but I, I can't see it coming anytime soon. I mean, the influence no, well, of, of, of senior politicians and you know groups such as the NRA just make it impossible to see in any yeah. time in my lifetime that that will change. But you know, hopefully, hopefully I'm, I'm wrong and, and that will come sooner rather than later. But I, I do feel a little sceptical on that, I'm afraid. Very sad, though. Very sad. Let's um, move on because anyway, we've, we've done that one. I, um, I'd, I'd love to say we're going to move on to happier issues and, uh, and perhaps only slightly. <laughs> Shall we talk about teachers' performance-related pay? <laughs> well, yeah, we, we can. I mean, I, yeah, we'll talk about the, the PFP if you want. And this is just based on um, a tweet. And, and actually, I heard from a teacher just this week um, and uh, basically they, they told me that in their, in their school, a member of staff, and this was last year, a member of staff had been, uh, had quit the profession after their head teacher had um, set a 60% target for them to meet with their GCSE groups. And I'm not sure whether it was one group or more than one, it could have been two, but a 60% target and they got 57%. And I think it was based on A star to C. So it wasn't based on a progress measure. It was just based on pure attainment. Uh, but it was either, either way, I suppose it doesn't really matter, to be honest with you. It was based on, you know, uh, attainment or progress, 60% or they got 57%. And they left the profession because they felt so deflated over this. Um, and actually, even if they hadn't of, they would not have met. That was the pay threshold. They had to meet that to get, to, to get their pay progression. So they would have been capped on pay on a pay rise. This is common in a lot of schools. This is common. Um, let me let me read you uh, a few of the responses on Twitter to my original tweet about this. Um, you know that that four, one from our uh, at John Baker. So John says that four percent represents a single student. I've added a comment saying who was probably absent for some lessons or was ill on the day of the exam. Um, uh, so let's read another one, it's going down the list. Um, so Cecilia Scott at Cecilia Teach RS on Twitter says, Teaching the only job where performance related pay is pay related to someone else's performance. Let's not, let's not get into that one again because we've already, we've already mentioned that one, haven't we? Uh, Ben Lewis uh, at Mr. History 123 is based in, in Texas. Hi, Ben. Um, says, Texan teacher here, man, this is crazy. Is this system all across the UK? Do teachers get more or less pay depending on how they score? I'm absolutely afraid so, Ben, they do. Um, and it's been a big part of UK school life for a long time. Um, 
Oh, and the list goes on, Chris. I mean, I could, I could, uh, I could uh, go go on and on and on. Now, some people have uh, raised the issue of. Uh, so, Paul Hammond at Paul uh, K Hammond has said, "Well, it's hard to judge when you don't know the context of that decision and whether other factors came into play." That is true. However, um, it, I, I would argue that that um, it's not fair to include that in any uh, decision of that nature. It's not, it's not fair to have that as any kind of gauge. Do you agree, Chris? I do. I think it, it, it points to uh, a really, really big issue that a lot of schools face, and uh, some schools really don't. So I think there, there is, you know, there is uh, a way in which this, this kind of uh, problem can be overcome. But it's a wider issue around the way in which schools judge individual teachers' performance. Um, for example, in addition to what you've said, I think the individual grading of lesson observations is still a problem for a lot of places. Um, there is absolutely no research evidence that I've ever read that suggests that that is in any way an adequate uh, performance indicator by you know, seeing either one whole lesson or a snapshot of one lesson and making a, uh, an informed decision about a teacher's performance based on that. Uh, that certainly shouldn't, I don't, I don't think, feature in performance-related pay negotiations, nor should the exam results that... But should, should PFP even exist is what... I mean, there's no evidence it raises stu- uh, performance of, of students or no, teachers. No, I, I think, I think it's, it's just the, the, the difficult nature of, of the profession, the many facets there are to it. Um, it's, it's how do you accurately measure the performance of a teacher anyway? Like what, do we, what do we even mean? Because we can't just put a numerical value on something and say you've got 60% of this, 90% of that, 10% of that. Those things just don't make any sense. Like you say, if, if the difference is between, uh, you know, between a sort of effectively pass and fail to get, you know, to move up uh, on the teacher's pay scale, if, if that's the sort of what we're looking at, and it's, it's then down to the performance of one student on one particular day, perhaps, that is just not good enough. It's just not good enough. It's not an okay way to deal with teachers' performance. Uh, if there are teacher I- issues of teacher performance, I would suggest that is not an example of one where there's a three or four percent, um, you know, like you say, one student difference between what would be deemed acceptable and what would be deemed unacceptable. It just seems madness to me. But even if you even if you take the performance-related pay aspect out, those targets are still being set. Those, those things are still being done in a lot of schools and it's so deflating for people so deflating um it literally rips their it rips their confidence apart and and again it comes back to our first item on this podcast is you know if uh damien hines amanda spielman are saying this is about leadership well there's one where Ofsted are judging schools on the performance of their students schools are setting targets on teachers based on the performance of their students People are leaving the profession because of those targets. There is an intrinsic link between all three. It's triangulating. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And uh, this, this completely links to teachers' workload. So, you know, let, let's not go over uh, overall ground. But, you know, this is not something that makes teachers feel better about their jobs. It's not something that makes them feel more empowered. It's not something that takes away stresses and pressures that will be better spent Uh, you know, on improving their lessons, on improving outcomes for pupils in a different way. There is absolutely no positive thing I can see about it. Yes, of course, we need to do whatever we can to push teachers to be the very best teachers that they can be. But I don't believe that performance-related pay uh, is in any way that solution. Yeah, I agree. And and to be honest with you, I think the the discussion on this is going to be pretty limited because I think the research tells us there's no evidence it works. That's one tick. It's causing more and more recruitment and retention issues. That's another tick. Um, it's not something that is the, 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 in a lot of cases, it's not the school's fault that they're setting those targets. Mm. They're setting them because they feel they have to. Tick. Um, so I think we've, we've covered everything that's wrong about it in the space of five minutes, which tells you, you know, how easy it would be for a policymaker to decide performance-related pay is rubbish. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Tom. Right, do you want to move on? Let's. What do you, where do you want to go next, Tom? We still have a few. Uh, a few well, things. let's talk about let's talk about practical pedagogies then, Chris, because I know okay. you you chat about it. Yeah. Uh, so, for uh, people who've listened to the podcast before, it's not this is not the first time we've discussed it. Um, practical pedagogies is a conference that is uh, run and organised by a man called Russell Tarr, who I know, Tom, you know very well. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he's a history teacher at the International School of Toulouse in uh, France. 
uh, really good guy, um, and he's uh, organizing the third, I think, installment of this conference. Uh, I uh, presented at the first one. Tom, I think you presented at the second one. Yeah, with Russell, actually. With yeah. Russell. Um, and so the, the first one was in 2015. 2016 was the, the next one. There wasn't one in 2017. Uh, but pleasingly, it is back. And it's on the 1st and the 2nd of November, 2018. Uh, not at Russell School this time in Toulouse, but uh, at a school, St. George's School in Cologne. Uh, in Germany, so that would be it's nice. He's, he's taking the uh, the conference on the road, uh, and the the lineup just looks absolutely great. I am presenting yeah. at it, but don't be put off by that. Uh, there are many many people who are uh, excellent who are who are there presenting about a range of topics. And one thing that I've always liked about this conference is it's not a conference about one particular topic. Any teacher of any you know in any kind of school, whether you work in foundation stage, whether or not you're the head of sixth form or whatever. Uh, there is something there for you. It's just a, you know, it's a, it's a really, really good conference program. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's in November and I'm still, you know, I'm already like, really excited about it. So yeah. but we'd sort of put that out there and, you know, alert people's attention to it. If you want to go, uh, tickets are on sale now. Uh, you can get them at practicalpedagogies.net. Uh, and it looks, uh, yeah, once again, we've put, like, as I say, we've both been to a conference uh, yeah. in the past and they've, they've been, they've been pretty great. So. Am I allowed to ask, am I allowed to ask what you're presenting on, Chris? You can, yes. Uh, my, the, the title of my presentation is Developing Young Leaders, A Practical Guide to Empowering Students. Um, so it's, uh, it's hopefully going to be, it's obviously set several months away, so not fully, uh, fully scoped out yet. Yeah. But, uh, but basically talking about a variety of kind of hard and soft leadership initiatives that we can, uh, we can implement in schools. Um, obviously, we, we know about things like student councils and digital leaders and other kinds of, um, you know, uh, leadership opportunities that there are but a, a lot of these things are in in my view done in a quite a piecemeal way to sometimes to tick a box on a on a school development yeah. plan. And, and you know actually are we always giving students real genuine leadership opportunities i'm not sure that we always do there are some some fantastic examples out there of people doing exactly that but i'm not sure they're, they're, they're always uh, as effective as they can be so basically yeah. around, around about an hour long and the session will be uh, as practical as possible giving people just ideas about how we can embed real genuine empowering leadership uh, to students in schools. So um, yeah, hopefully that will be something that's useful and interesting to people and uh, I'm looking forward to presenting it. I like the sound of that, mate. Um, another one that I'd love to, I suppose I'd better give it a plug now that we're talking about conferences is next weekend is uh, TM History Icons. It is, it is. Third, thank you, the third annual event, the history teaching, well, I can't really call it history teaching event of the year because there's lots of other great ones, but certainly it's the biggest free teacher history teacher event in the UK or Europe. Um, uh, this year is, is, should be phenomenal. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, we've got some incredible presenters and uh, we've, got, we've increased the capacity. We've got the venues, unbelievable. I mean, we're at the Grosvenor Hotel this year, um, which is really exciting because it's probably the best hotel in the Northwest of, of England. Um, I mean, it's amazing, um, location-wise and, and interior and everything else. Um, lunch provided again for attendees and the way we've done it this year is to have a, a deposit so even though the event is still completely free um, we've basically asked for a 10 pound deposit um and, which will be given back on the day um just to cover because i know a lot of people have had issues who, who've organized teach meets and different conferences with with kind of no shows you know and obviously when that happens if the event is free you know it can cost the the organizers do you know what i mean yeah, yeah, very much so. It's it's difficult. I remember um, having a, a very similar issue uh, myself at a teach meet that I organised a couple of years back when um, certain assurances were made to me about uh, cost of venues and that kind of thing based on turnout and numbers and that kind of thing. <laughs> In the end, I uh, chrismail.com got stung for a little bit of cash. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was that's why chris like i was saying earlier i would trust you with the national economy that's exactly <laughs> why because you would borrow to make sure that economy stayed afloat you wouldn't you wouldn't let the economy just crumble you would borrow and you borrow big <laughs> i've spent my life doing exactly that so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah but coming back to the conference is fantastic i mean and, and i have to give a shout out to my fellow present uh, organizers this year because they've been absolutely amazing. Um, Alex Fairlam, Carol Stobbs, Alice Southern, Andrew Sweet, um, all four of them volunteered. They said, we'll help you organise. And they've been unbelievable, really unbelievable in everything they've managed to do. Um, in fact, the commitment of Alice <laughs> was demonstrated last week when she, uh, she called BBC Radio 2 
um, while Dan Snow was on it, because uh, Dan Snow is recording a, a welcome video for us uh, for the event, which is amazing because, you know, he's just a certified history legend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Alice actually called Radio 2 and said, you know, this message for Dan and, and Simon Mayo, your namesake, Chris, um, read it out to Dan, uh, which was very both amusing and demonstrated her commitment to the cause. Well, that's great. Um, I, I'm sure, Tom, as uh, as in the previous two years, it will be uh, it'll be incredibly successful. I know that the feedback from the last two conferences was incredible, and you know you've got once again an amazing range of presenters, and uh, I'm sure it'll be it'll be absolutely great. So good luck with that. I hope you're going to watch some of it, Chris. It's on live stream. I know it's on live stream. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly planning to. So uh, yeah, make sure we've uh, got the link, and I'll uh, I'll do what I can. Yeah, nice one, mate. Right. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, we've got a couple of things on uh, people premium that, that you were going to talk about. Do you want to start there, or do you want to talk about rote learning and the CBI's comments? Okay, I think I think we'll start. Well, do you want to head on to the people premium then? Yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, this this weekend, I'm I'm basically releasing an article for the TES. Probably by the time this podcast comes out, it'll already be be out. Um, but basically, it's it's based around. Um, the fact that the, I believe, my personal view is that pupil premium does more damage than it does good. Um, I understand that'll be... These are controversial great. words. Controversial words, Tom. Absolutely. I'm, I'm full of controversy, Chris. Um, <laughs> uh, the, reason is that, the reason is this. Let me, let me summarise it for you. At the moment, the government spends around £2.5 billion a year on the pupil premium. Um, which is a, a stupendous amount of money. Now, yes, we have to put into context that some of that money, um, some of that money is filtered into other areas within schools by the schools themselves. However, the key goal, the key aspiration of the pupil premium is to narrow the gap between disadvantaged students and, and so-called non-disadvantaged students. Now, again, to put a proviso on that, you have, you have a student whose both parents are working at jobs that are fairly low paid, but they're working very long hours. They're just above the pupil premium threshold. When they come home from school, their parents are still in work. Their parents, when they finish work, are too tired to help them or support them with homework and so on. To me, that student is disadvantaged compared to another student whose parents actually have more time to do that. Um, so that's, that's one issue I'd just like to throw into how we define disadvantage and non-disadvantage. You, you know, we, I think we need, at the moment, it's just on a financial level, and that's it. That's the cutoff. There's no other. I mean, is there any way you can look at anything else? Probably not, but that's the way it looks at the moment. So anyway, you've got 2.5 billion being spent. Now, the results since 2010 of that people premium money being piled in has been, there has been no notable gap decrease between the pupil premium attainment and non-pupil premium attainment. There has only been piecemeal increases, very small increases, in, and slightly more on progress from key stage two to four, but on attainment, completely minimal, and even on progress, still very, very minimal based on the amount of money that's been put into this. Now, it's my, it's my, my solution to this, which I've highlighted in, in the article today, or a, a couple of other options anyway, to, to have a go at. Um, one of them would be parental engagement, parental support. So you'll have to read the article, but I've given some examples, and, and some of them are based on the Social Mobility Commission report from last year, which actually suggested three or four different um, organizations or charities that run um, different things for parents. They're aimed at parents. They're aimed at social care. They're aimed at things outside the school because remember, Chris, what I said earlier in this podcast, about 80% of um, student outcomes can be attributed to outside factors. So it's my belief that 20% of the pupil premium should be directly channeled into schools. The remainder of that pupil premium should be channeled elsewhere. One option is to target parental engagement and to target social welfare and to target those issues. Now, whether that, that should be universal or not, I'm unsure. I don't know the answer to that. I would like to think it would be universal, but, you know, that's, that's and, and what, what the tie-ins are and so on, I've no idea. But 
that that's one option as a different course to what we're taking now, where we've got this 2.5 billion, in some cases, it seems to be just vanishing into a black hole in many cases because things aren't changing. The second option that I put on the table was that, um, now I'll have to, have to get the stats up in front of me, but essentially we could, we could employ with that money if we kept 20% of it in its current form, so we protected and ring-fenced 20% of that 2.5 billion. If we took the rest, we can employ about 9,000 extra NQTs this coming year. We have a teacher recruitment and retention criteria. If we do not have teachers in front of the children, the children, all the children, then we not only will not see an a decrease in the gap, we just won't see anything at all. We, we just won't see any, any kind. We'll just get nothing out of our 20% impact. So I feel as though we need to look at that carefully because we, we, you know, we're going to run out of teachers. We need to look at where that money's going. Um, for me, if they're spending that money on extra resources for the kids, that's great. But if we're talking about impact, I'd rather see some NQTs. I'd rather see some actual teachers. You could also give every single teacher in the country a £500 a year wage increase straight off the bat. Alternative to that... You could look at schools in the most deprived areas in the country and you could give teachers who stay there every year a retention bonus of, say, £1,000, £1,500 a year. We've got a real issue with good leaders, good teachers leaving schools in, in, in areas like that. We need to keep them and we need to say, look, you're valued here. Now, money is not the reason that teachers went into the classroom in the first place. They, they probably went in to change lives, I would hope. And, and most that I speak to do. So another option apart from the cash increase is to look at extra TAs, to look at giving the existing teachers more PPA time, to look at giving teachers lower class sizes, which obviously employing more teachers would do. So they're my alternative options on pupil premium, which I've outlined in, in, in my article this week, and I really hope that people take the time to read it. Um, um, so I, I just feel as though we need a drastic reform of it or we need to actually abolish it. That, that's, and, and the other thing I haven't mentioned in all of that is the impact that people bring because Ofsted put this massive emphasis on the gap in inverted commas. This has led to schools and teachers and school leaders doing some pretty unnatural things. You know, we've got, we've got teachers who are told to mark certain books first. We've got teachers who are told to give out pens to certain students who are missing them first, singling out individual students. I know this is controversial, but I'd rather talk about it as a debate openly than, 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 than close the door on it, because I think we need to have this debate because it's 2.5 billion pounds that's, that's going into it every year. Does that make sense, Chris? Uh, in a sense, I understand what you're, what you're getting at. <clears throat> I think I would say that there are a number of things that I would pick up on that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, yeah. So, for example, your the, the most recent point you made there was about you know individuals being asked to do certain things you know for certain pupils first or, you know more frequently whatever. I'm not. By the way, just to be clear, I'm not. I don't know whether this is that is a good thing or a bad thing. It just doesn't sit completely right with me, is what I'm saying. No, no. And I think I well, I think I'd agree with you, but I think that that is that is just an example of poor leadership and the fa and people premium here is just something that if it muddies that issue. That's 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 potentially an issue of just uh, a decision that someone just got wrong that just that for me doesn't seem like the right thing to do. I would imagine yeah. in a similar <clears throat> in, in the same school, there's, but there's you know maybe other decisions that are made that are similarly strange with the, that don't have anything to do with people premium. Um, so I mean I think that, that for me is something that is is you know is not as related to, uh, but perhaps you know maybe slightly linked to people premium. Um, I, I think for me the, the the money issue is the one that is is. The, the biggest here. I mean, 2.5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but you know, it, you know, and it is, I suppose, but from central government is not actually all that huge. It's not, you know, uh, it, it's not absolutely massive when we talk about the numbers of people this affects. I think the idea, of course, around people premium has always been a good one, the idea of narrowing the gap and using money specifically to do that. Yeah. Um, in terms of recruiting teachers, um, I know lots and lots and lots of schools, and this is just, this is personal kind of anecdotes rather than uh, any kind of, you know, nationwide uh, evidence that I have, but I know an awful lot of schools who do employ either uh, teachers or uh, members of support staff uh, entirely from people premium money. Um, and 
so I, I know that that is already happening in places. I know schools that I've previously worked in. That's that's you know. Something. Yeah, and that's and that's fine. But I believe we need to. I believe we need to mark that as as non-pupil premium money. But then the the thing, if we take if we take it. If we take it back to one of the things you said about maybe using all of that money or a huge chunk of that, 80% of that money, whatever, to uh, hire NQTs, well, where are those NQTs coming from? We already have an issue with recruiting NQTs because we don't have enough people who are training to become teachers. Um, yeah. So like, where do we get these teachers from? That's a fair point. And I don't know where they come from. Um, so well, what about, what about the idea of the pay increases and the bonuses? I also think, I, I personally, I mean, what, so we, we, we could give every teacher in the country £500 a year. Well, after tax, what are we talking, 380 quid in a year? It's, yeah. it's, it's pennies. It's not the sort of thing that we keep... I understand, keep but that, that's, cal that's calculated on literally every teacher in the country. I mean, there could be other ways of doing that, you see, because... Well, Fine, but I mean, you know, that's, not stag that's not staggered. For example, NQTs for me are paid pittance for, for what yeah. they do. Yeah, yeah. So wouldn't it be more sensible to stagger that, that money towards the, the people in the first five years? So they started on, say, 30 grand instead of 22. Well, maybe that, that is a big diff. That is a big difference. Yeah, that's a huge difference. But then uh, I think someone who's been teaching for five years might be a little bit annoyed about that. Yeah, but they, they'd still get it, would be staggered. So your first year, 30 or whatever, then it might, it might be, it might get lower and lower as you i don't know chris i'm just looking at different solutions because if this if the if the gap is not now what, what I, it's not that i disagree with anything you've just said it's just that i know you said 2.5 billion is not a lot of money but I, I, you know i feel it is i think it's a massive chunk of money when we're in the midst of this massive funding crisis massive teacher recruitment retention crisis i i think it is a lot of money um and for me, I think we do need to look at making sure we spend every single penny on education in ways that has, has the best impact on kids' achievement and, 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 and just on, on, on how, and how things happen in schools, really. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, of course, I disagree with that. I, I I'm just not seeing, I know, but I'm just not seeing the, 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 the outcome from that 2.5 billion in its current form since 2010, 2.5 a year. Well, I mean, obviously, the good news is that you can you can or should at least be able to see what uh, schools have done with that money because they're still, as far as I'm aware, uh, required by, uh, by law to yeah. publish that information on their school websites. And I know that, you know, again, schools that I've worked in the past in the UK, and it's, it's probably important to point out that I haven't taught in the UK for about, you know, almost two and a half years now. So, um, yeah, so same with me, but I don't think it's changed much. In, I don't in think it's changed much, much either, but, you know, that is something that is published on schools, schools' websites. And I, I know from previous schools that I've worked in that, that like every penny is accounted for and it's, you know, it's available to see where the money's gone. Uh, and I, you know, in my experience, have, have not seen many places where I think that money's been mismanaged. I know that there will be schools that where, where it has, and it actually hasn't gone to places that have a direct impact on the students it was targeted to impact on. Um, but I also know an awful lot that, 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 you know, where that's not the case. So I, I just be very cautious about making any changes that actually do then withdraw money that has been incredibly useful to, to people who, uh, who really need it the most. And also to members of staff who have been employed with that money. I know some schools working yeah. very, very, very tight budgets who have been able to use people premium funding to employ more people. Um, those jobs would go simply. Uh, if uh, it, Not in all schools maybe, but in, in a lot of schools, that, that those jobs would go. Uh, and then students and other colleagues would be less supported than they currently are. And I think that's a, yeah. we have to really safeguard against. Listen, mate, I, understand, I totally understand both sides of this debate. I think it's just important to raise these issues. I think it's important to have this debate about this money. I do. And, and to look at it properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Cool. All right, mate. Um, what do you want to do now? What have we got left? I've got one, one more uh, major uh, conversation topic, I guess, which is this uh, uh, article that you shared with me about uh, yeah. business leaders, the CBI calling for less rote learning in schools. Yeah, less rote learning. Um, yeah, so the CBI have basically come out and said we need to get away from, from rote learning and, and uh, move back to something that links with the world of work has been their line um, uh, yesterday at the, at the ASCL conference. Um, uh, how are you feeling on this, Chris, just actually from, from what we've read? Well, as, as I mean, we, we talked briefly before before we started recording, and I think one of the things that I, I was keen to point out is that um, though there have been changes to the curriculum under the current government, um, 
I don't feel that schools are uh, a hub of rote learning at the moment anyway. I think the majority ah. of teachers, you know, continue to teach in engaging and creative ways that don't focus on traditional methods of rote learning. I know there are schools that do uh, more, more than other schools and, and some schools that do less than other schools. I'm aware of that. Um, so the first thing I would say is I really don't think that the CBI um, should be massively uh, uh, concerned about that as an issue uh, because I don't think it is a big issue. But of course, the flip side is we know that since the, the, the changes have come around in, in the last few years uh, to the curriculum, that there has been more emphasis on, on the acquisition uh, and sort of, you know, and recalling of facts, uh, certainly in subjects uh, like your own, Dom, with, with history. Um, and I know that that is an issue. And I think a skills-based curriculum uh, is much, much more important than uh, a fact-driven, knowledge-based curriculum, though, of course, certain uh, Facts uh, are obviously vital that people know, uh, and I think that's probably where they're where they're coming from when they talk about um, maybe the, the, the lack of skills that students might be acquiring in, in, in favour of this just this pure knowledge. Um, so I'd, I'd sympathise with that. I think. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll just read you what 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 was said at the conference by uh, Mr. Dreschler um, from the CBI. He said, "But if memorising facts is all students are doing." There's much they are missing out on. Let's dump the ideology. No more fixation on school structures and exam reform. It's time for a national, rational debate on how we help our young people succeed. And then let's reform the curriculum to deliver the results we need. It sounds simple, but here's what worries me. Perhaps our politicians are too entrenched. Perhaps the ideological commitments hold too firm a grip. Perhaps old habits die hard. We should take ownership. Let's persuade our politicians to set up a new education commission. Um, the commission could bypass turf wars. It would have a broad membership. Let's get it. Let's set up another commission, Chris. Let's get Chris Mayo on it. That'd help, wouldn't it? It would definitely help having another organisation devoted to talking about these same issues. That would really help. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's what he said. And, and I think he gave the example of saying, you know, uh, the times table tests. I mean, he, he said they were important, by the way, but it is another example. I, you know, I, I kind of see where he's coming from. Another example of, of um, I mean, I think times tables are incredibly important, by yeah, the way. Yeah, me too, me too. I, uh, I, as, as, uh, as I'm, so, I'm so very, very against an awful lot of this kind of rote learning idea. And I'm not saying yeah. that, you, that, that rote learning is the only way in which someone can, can acquire timetables, you know, knowledge. But, but I suppose if you're linking, if you're, if you then start linking the timetables results to some kind of accountability structure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's But I think that's it, we, we'd find it difficult to find many people who, who think that, you know, knowing those very basic number facts that you can very quickly recall, it'd be very difficult yeah. to find people who disagree that that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think so. There are some out there, believe it or not. But, yeah, yeah, of course, uh, of course. But certainly not that many. Um, I think everybody's, well, most people are on the same page on that. Um, I suppose what we're saying is it's about learning something, essentially by rote, isn't it? And whether that is more important or as good as, I mean, the CBI, there have been comments about lack of apprenticeships, lack of people going through into skill you know, engineering, for example, mm -hmm. here, here in Vigo. You know, it takes about five minutes to bump into someone here in Spain in their twenties uh, who, who's an engineer. Take, takes five minutes. Um, whereas in the United Kingdom, I would suggest it would take you a lot longer to bump into someone in the twenties who's an engineer. Yeah, just take my point. Now that might be because Vigo is it has a particular area. There's a lot of fish, uh, a lot of um, industrial yards, etc. But you know, for me, it is an issue. And we do need to, and this isn't about saying, like you've just said, it isn't about saying that knowledge isn't important because I genuinely believe it is. Um, but it is about looking at um, the differences in different young people. What are they actually going to do when they leave school? You know, what are they actually going to do? What are they doing when they leave school? You know, I think these are important questions to, to put across. Yeah, and I think that's where that's where the acquisition of skills is is much more important than the acquisition of knowledge. Though, of course, knowledge is still important because in a world where an awful lot of things can be googled instantly, um, you know, how important is it to know when when a particular thing happened in in, in history? This is not a slight against you, you and your uh, your. Uh, oh, Chris, Chris. <laughs> but no, you know, knowing when the Battle of Waterloo is is definitely interesting. How useful it is uh, on a day to day basis when you compare the the ability to uh, interrogate sources, for example, 
well, the, the two things are just not comparable, are they? So I think that what they're trying to get at is that those 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 hard and soft skills are much more important than you know than knowing hard facts. I think. And I, I, I yeah, I mean, I remember my I was speaking to my nan. I think it was last year, and she was saying about. I mean, she's ninety two now, but when she was at school, she in the thirties, she they they kind of made them learn different poems, mm-hmm. and and she said that through her life, you know, that's been something really valuable to her is yeah. learning those poems off by heart. It has come back to her at different times in her life. She has been able to use that actually in her life at different points. <laughs> and I respect that. And I think that that is, that is something kind of cool. You know, I don't know educationally whether it's important or not, but it is kind of cool, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think education should really be just about remembering. I think we should be doing something a bit more, uh, a bit more interesting, a bit more useful than just yeah, 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 remember yeah. stuff. For sure, for sure. Uh, I think we've covered that, mate. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I reckon we, I reckon we wrap it up, mate. Yeah, we've... Uh, I we, we've... I we wrap up this monster episode, just after <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which well, we may actually split up into two podcasts. So well, by the time you're listening to me say this, you'll be very confused because um, it won't have gone on for that long. And also, can I just say, we won't be splitting it up into two podcasts because that will take me 15 seconds of editing that I'm not prepared to do. <laughs> <laughs> We're so professional, aren't we? We're so, so professional. I've got, I've got in my mind that uh, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving the house in about 10 minutes' time to go and watch uh, my team be roundly defeated by Liverpool today. So I think it's... Well, <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope for the best as an Everton fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, so well we'll see but um, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll we'll end it here at least alright mate yeah let's 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 end it um, thanks for thanks for tuning in folks yeah thanks for listening and um, as always uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Staff Room Ramble uh, or individually I am Chris at Chris Mayo and Tom is at Rogers History uh, so thanks for tuning in uh, goodbye and we will hope to speak to you again very soon <laughs>